John chapter 13, open your Bible, navigate over there on your device so we can follow along together. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15 is our text. The topic, Jesus loved his own to the end, and he shows it by washing their feet and later praying for them. The title of our message, Feet, Pray, Love. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to approach this with real humility because it's a text about humility. It's about your humility. You're humbling yourself, Lord, and uh, becoming exalted once again so that we might uh, be born again, so that we might be saved, so that the gospel, Lord, may go out into the world. And so I pray that you would teach us by your spirit, take your word and illuminate our hearts, Lord, we pray. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Who are you wearing? On the red carpet, a celebrity might say Gucci or Versace, Armani. In Kings County, you might say working man store, Target or Walmart, Ross, dress for less, those kinds of things. My junior and senior years in high school in Southern California, the cool kids wore Levi Button Fly 501 jeans from Miller's Outpost, white pocket t-shirts from Sears, and then tennis shoes or boots every day. Rain or shine or whatever was going on, that was our uniform. What about you? What was your look in high school? Don't, it's kind of creepy probably to think about it, but it'll come back around. Just once I'd like to hear a celebrity answer, who are you wearing, by saying Jesus. In Romans 13, 14, the Apostle Paul instructs believers to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase put on Christ means figuratively to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to wear him like a garment. It's a metaphor, a figure. Jesus made a wardrobe change at the Last Supper. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, the Lord said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Gird up, Christian, and tie on your towel. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, don't underestimate your toweling. And number two, don't overthink your toweling. Let's take a look at uh, toweling starting in verses 1 through 11, not underestimating its uh, worth in our lives. Give me your sword, requested Aragorn of a very frightened young boy. It was the eve of the Battle of Helm's Deep, and everyone was outfitting themselves as best they could from the armory. This is a good sword, he concluded. The next five chapters of the Gospel of John describe a single night, the Thursday of Passion Week. It is the night before cosmic forces will culminate at the cross. Jesus inspires his disciples by wielding not a sword, but a towel. This is a good towel, the perfect towel for the conflict at hand. And so verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 6,000 years or so earlier, God had spoken of coming to earth to defeat the devil. He said to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman was a prophecy that the virgin birth 
would bring God into human flesh in the incarnation. The hour was at hand in which the God-man would die, rise from the dead, and ascend back to heaven. The, the, the time that all of history had been building up for was then. Jesus loved them to the end has a double meaning. It refers to the end of his life. Jesus would complete the mission of sacrificing himself on the cross. For the sake of loving them, he would go to the cross and complete what he had started. And end can mean conclusion. As believers, we see an end, a conclusion to this current creation and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's, it's the end of things as we know it and the beginning of eternity. And so Jesus loves you to the end, uh, infinitely on into eternity. He gave himself for you on the cross. What he began in you, he will conclude. He will conform you into his image. And one day we will awake in his likeness. Uh, he will restore creation and we will live in it without sin forever. Verse 2, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Comparing all the accounts, we learn Judas was sitting right next to Jesus. Jesus knew it wasn't only Judas sitting there. The devil was there. Talk about keeping your enemies close. From the beginning, Jesus knew that Judas was a devil, we read in John chapter 6. I don't think anyone would have thought it a good idea to have Judas as one of the twelve. So when, whenever they had the meeting for that, and, you know, when Jesus was praying about his disciples, what about Judas? Uh, can I object? Uh, you know, the guy's a thief. He's, you know, he's, he's going to be called a devil from the beginning. And yet the father said, no, this is perfect. This is a perfect individual for uh, the things that I need to do and teach and uh, all of that. And so uh, very interesting choice here uh, and you know just makes us scratch our head just lets me know how little I know about the heart of God and about the plans of God and so I think it's safe to say that a battle of cosmic proportions was already underway at that low table where they were eating on the surface it seemed more like a staring match or a battle of wits I mean Judas was sitting there next to Jesus and they had a little bit of conversation as we read in the other Gospels, but the 11 disciples had no idea what was going on. But, but you know, the presence of, G of Satan there, this is a spiritual warfare of incredible magnitude. And so verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, stop there for a minute, time was preciously scarce, only hours and Jesus would be separated from his disciples until after his death and resurrection. And shortly thereafter, Jesus would ascend and be gone an undisclosed period of time. He's still gone. Whatever Jesus said and did at this supper, well, it must have critical importance, right? Because it's, it's, it's the last opportunity he's going to have before he sacrifices himself on the cross. And though it goes on into the night, there's a very limited amount of time. And so this is important stuff. And so verse 4, Jesus rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He rose from supper because they reclined on pillows around what I've been calling a low table. Um, don't even look at Da Vinci's, uh, you know, uh, Last Supper anymore. Uh, the, the more you look at that man, that is one of the creepiest paintings of all time. There are so many creepy characters in it and weird stuff, and, and it doesn't represent the proper seating in terms of how they, uh, you know, would sit around the table and stuff. So just forget about that. Get that out of your head. And, and so he rose, removed his outer robe, and he'd have on a shorter tunic underneath. He tied a long towel around his waist, apron-like, then with a pitcher of water in a basin, went from disciple to disciple. In that moment, with hindsight, we can see that Jesus weaponized the towel. The Apostle Paul explains a little bit about what we mean in that brilliant passage in Philippians that presents Jesus in his incarnation and then his glorification. <clears throat> Let this mind be in you, Philippians 2.5, which was also in Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it uh, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The heart of this here is that Jesus humbled himself. He was God, but he volunteered to be born of a virgin and add humanity to his deity. For over 30 years, he set aside the independent use of his deity and perfectly obeyed God the Father. Jesus never did anything on his own without being directed by his Father. His penultimate obedience was to give himself as a sacrifice on the cross. His humility was rewarded by his being exalted above all creation. And so that's the sequence in Philippians. Uh, humbled himself to be exalted. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted Vincent DePaul, who said, and I really, I really love this quote, the most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility. For as he does not know at all how to employ it, neither does he know how to defend himself from it. If you see humility as the opposite of pride, or at least a foil to pride, uh, you can sort of understand this, because the devil is, is pride. He's filled with pride, he exalts himself to be as God, and he has no thoughts of humility or humbling himself. And so the Lord is able to do, use this strategy right under his very nose. Gandalf's strategy for defeating Sauron in the Lord of the Rings is to see to it that the one ring is destroyed. It was something the Dark Lord could not foresee. He could not imagine that anyone would have the ring of power would want to destroy it, but rather wield it and he, he, until it was too late. His gaze was not in the right place. Zach Poonin writes, Sin came through the pride of Lucifer, and salvation came through the humility of Jesus. 
Jesus defeated Satan by humbling himself. Not just then, not just at dinner. His humility began in the Garden of Eden when he volunteered to come as the seed of the woman. Jesus' entire life was a humbling. The circumstances of his conception were humiliating, thought to be illegitimately conceived, uh, and that haunted him. Uh, well, not him, but it followed him the rest of his life. We saw in his ministry uh, that the Jews accuse him of, of being an illegitimate son. For a time, Jesus and his family were fugitives, hiding from murderous King Herod. They eventually settled in a not-so-desirable Nazareth. The prophet Isaiah said of Jesus, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness. When we went to see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this doesn't mean Jesus was ugly or deformed or anything like that. It's, it's, Isaiah is saying, you wouldn't pick Jesus out from a crowd. He's that average. You, you wouldn't, when you see him, you wouldn't expect it to be him. I've always assumed that Jesus had what we call charisma, right? There's certain individuals that just have, they just have a charisma. And they, you know, they're just, people are drawn to them. I don't think Jesus even had charisma. Not according to Isaiah. That's something we read into it. Isaiah said there was nothing about him. Nothing. No comeliness. There's no beauty that we should desire him. And so we say, well, he must have been charismatic. Why? He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and God did remarkable things with, with that formula. And so, you know, Jesus, he wasn't ugly, he wasn't handsome, he was just average, and there was nothing really about him other than his obedience and humility. <clears throat> Back to the tussle at the table. Satan's strategy was coming together. It was classic deception, betrayal based on lies leading to murder. Uh, classic the devil, right? If something works for you, you just stick with it. And so that's what he was doing. Jesus rose from the table and he humbled himself. Washing the feet of the disciples was like setting off a spiritual warhead on the devil's forehead. It was an H-bomb, a humble bomb. Well, really, it's like, hey, what are you, how are you going to counter this? The devil is having the Last Supper with you, and you're going to the cross. What's your counter? He goes, H-bomb, humility bomb, and here it comes. I'm going to take off my outer garment and wash some feet. There is no greater weapon, no more effective strategy than humility. The only thing that Satan could do was kill Jesus, but that would only make the Lord's humility complete. It would be humility on steroids, humility to the infinite power because he gave his life for those who were rejecting him. At the cross, in what looked like a satanic victory, Jesus declared the work finished. He showed his victory by dismissing his own spirit to death in a loud voice, no less. And so the, the devil still, it baffles us, right? We think, oh, why doesn't the devil know what's going on? Because, you know, Jesus had been talking about it and all of this. And I think a large part, in large part, it's because he's focused on pride. And he, like Vincent de Paul says, he can't understand humility. He can't understand how the humiliation of the cross is going to give Jesus the victory. And so Jesus on the cross to bystanders seemingly having lost, 
He lost his disciples. He lost everything. He's on the cross engineering the whole thing. And he finally says, you know, it's, it's early. Most people last longer than this, but my work is finished. There's nothing more I need to do. It is finished. And he dismissed his own spirit. How's that, devil? It's crazy. It's crazy humility. When Jesus stood up and took off his outer garment, it illustrated his divesting himself of deity and taking on humanity in the incarnation. Then he took up his outer garment as he did his deity in the resurrection. Leon Morris says of the foot washing, it is a parable in action, setting out that great principle of humility which finds its supreme embodiment in the cross. From heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, humbled, then exalted. Verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Scholars are pretty much in agreement about where Jesus, Judas, John, and Peter reclined around the table. The other disciples, not so much, but there are clues as to where these guys were. Judas and John were seated next to Jesus on his left and his right, respectively. Yes, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Peter was across from John, which put him in the last spot as he went around clockwise. It seems that the Lord came to Peter first. And so they're watching Jesus and, and they're thinking, well, he's, looks like he's going to wash some feet because he's doing all this you know, garment stuff and basin. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, are you, you, are you to wash my feet? Is that what's going on here? And Jesus said, yeah. Now, before we criticize Peter for his initial refusal, consider this. When John the Baptist desired to give expression to his feeling of unworthiness in comparison to Christ, he could think of no better way to express it than to say that he deemed himself unworthy of kneeling down in order to unloose his sandal straps and remove his sandals, obviously with a view towards washing Jesus' feet. And so John said, I couldn't even wash the Messiah's feet. That's how low I am. I'm lower than low. And so um, <clears throat> Peter uh, you know, he, he blusters and we criticize him all the time. But this is a, it's a decent response, really, except that he doesn't know what's really going on. Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but you will know after this. After his death, resurrection and ascension, and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, then the meaning not only of this foot washing, but of his entire work of humiliation would become clear to his disciples. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this, is an explanation we are going to hear over and over again in our lives as we walk with the Lord. We are not going to find the deep meaning of all the events of our lives. God's plans are too wonderful, they are too complex for him to be able to break down every detail for us because of our curiosity. I wrote here, we can't know the butterfly effect. Are you familiar with that? It's the theory that if a butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the earth, it affects all, uh, everything. And so no matter what happens, it affects everything. This is why time travel movies are so difficult to get right, because you never know how, what the effect is going to be. And so we're, we're, we are just not going to know the meaning of everything in our lives and everything that happens in our lives, uh, it, it would be impossible. We couldn't handle it. 
and we shouldn't try to make everything meaningful. We trust by faith that all things are working together for the good. The presence of the Lord is all the meaning that we really require. This is where I think sometimes Christians uh, become obsessed with trying to figure out, uh, trying to make something that, you know, some suffering or, or something like that, make it meaningful. Well, now I know why God did this. You hear this at funerals all the time by non-believers. They say, well, you know, God needed a, another gardener or God, God needed a, a chauffeur or, you know, whatever. And so it's like there has to be some meaning. Uh, and so people just throw out stupid things. And so, so uh, the, regardless, of, you'll know the meaning one day or not care. And in the meantime, you're with the Lord. The, you know, the, the, you draw close to him and he draws close to you. And he'll tell you some things, but he's not obligated to tell you the meaning of everything that's going on uh, because you, you really couldn't handle it. Keep us little and unknown, prized and loved by God alone. I like that. Charles Wesley said that. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Never say never. Good advice when we're dealing with the Lord. Whatever, wherever, whenever are better attitudes to have. Here am I, Lord, send me, or here am I, Lord, don't send me, as the case may be. I mean, we just, Lord, whatever you want to do, don't say never. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I do like that Peter was an all-in kind of guy. It's better to try to channel someone's zeal than to try and stir them up. Uh, you know, it doesn't always seem that way, but I'd rather have to take a fire extinguisher to somebody on fire uh, than try and start a light a fire under them when they're not really excited about the Lord. The Gospels present Peter as a big man. The foot washing basin would not be sufficient for a bath, but in addition to his feet, Peter wanted his hands and his head washed. Any part of him that might have cooties, he said, okay, then wash me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Because of his total humiliation, culminating on the cross, the Lord can cleanse us. Though our sins be as crimson, he makes them white as snow. It is likened elsewhere to his giving us a robe of righteousness that outfits us for heaven. We stand before him in filthy rags, the Bible says, that because of what he did on the cross, he can give us his robe of righteousness and take upon himself our filthy rags, and we are saved and declared righteous. After that, as you walk in the world, the Lord spot cleans you. Theologians call this aspect of salvation your sanctification. We read, for example, that Jesus intends to sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. To be specific, what we believe is called progressive sanctification. We make progress to the end. Jerry Bridges said, Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, whereby our inner being is progressively changed, freeing us more and more from sinful traits and developing within us, over time, the virtues of Christ-like character. So it's just becoming more and more like Jesus every day. You're saved once for all, then sanctified day by day. One day, you'll be raised from the dead or raptured. You will then experience the completion of your salvation. It's called glorification. 
F.F. Bruce writes, sanctification is glory begun, glory is sanctification completed. Verse 10, you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Eleven of them were saved and were being sanctified. One of them was not, and things were about to get real. God enjoys using odd implements as weapons to show his power. Shamgar, in the book of Judges, killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. Samson killed 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. Gideon's army was equipped with jars, torches, and trumpets for their victory. Christians have an odd assortment of weapons. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10 uh, speaks of some of them. Now, when I, if I were to ask you about the weapons of our warfare, you'd probably go to Ephesians 6 and talk about the, uh, the armor of God, and, and that's true. But here's some other weapons we don't think of so much. These are, many, in many cases, weapons of humiliation. And so Paul said, we don't give offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And so Paul was all about ministry and preaching the gospel, and so he was careful not to be in a situation where people could criticize him for some reason uh, because he said, hey, I, I'll give up whatever I need to give up in order for the gospel to go out. But then he says, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in patience, tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, in labor and sleeplessness and fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. If my count is accurate, Paul lists 37 things that are potential weapons in our warfare, and they are all things that would come under the heading of humility, of humbling yourself. And so if you, you want to get some, a handle on humility, start going through 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, and pick out some of those things like patience or long-suffering or dishonor and think, what does that really mean in terms of me having and showing humility? Don't underestimate the power of toweling, of, of being that servant. And verses 12 through 15, don't overthink it either. If we come away from this thinking we ought to have foot-washing ceremonies, we've missed the point. Jesus will reiterate what matters is humbling yourself and putting him on, especially his humility. And so verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Jesus sat down. It completed the figure. He would return to heaven, sit down at the Father's right hand. He would look very different when John saw him in the first chapter of the Revelation. Uh, he would have an entirely different look. If you have a presentation to make, it's best to begin with something important, I would say. Jesus was a masterful teacher. In a night filled with instruction, Jesus wanted first to set the standard the church age would continue as his humiliation on earth, as his disciples all take up the towel. And so right out of the gate, Jesus' introduction to what he's going to talk about for the next five chapters is humility. You need to humble yourself the way I humbled myself. And that is the basis of which all of this is going to move forward.
We're the towel academy. We're the fellowship of the towel, as it were. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. No one is greater than Jesus. To save you, he humbled himself. You and I are asked to humble ourselves. Knowing how far Jesus stooped, can there be any resistance to putting on humility? If Jesus asks you to humble yourself in some way, to put on humility like a garment, and you think, well, Lord, what did you do for me? You ever get into an argument like that with people and say, what, what did you do for me? Well, I'll tell you what I did for you. I added humanity to my deity, and I'm forever the God-man. I humbled myself and came and died for you, stooping from heaven to earth. I think you can be nicer to your wife or your husband or whatever the case may be. I think there's a, I think there's a humility breakthrough there for you because I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done myself to an infinite degree. We're not talking about eating humble pie. You know that expression, eating humble pie? By the way, did you know that in the Middle Ages, they ate humble pie, right? And it's, this is true as far as I can tell, as far as the internet. Humble derives from the French word numble, <laughs> which means deer innards. Today we call innards offal. Numble, humble, humble, awful, awful is what I came up with. But uh, the idea was that, you know, uh, I don't know, those of you guys who hunt, maybe you do. I mean, maybe you're, you're humble pie guys, you know, and stuff. But I pretty much think you just want the meat and the rest of that stuff gets left behind. But, uh, and so in the Middle Ages, you know, the, the good meat went to people who were wealthy and then everybody else got the organs that were left over. And they, you know, in some cultures, they're a delicacy, but it's really awful, uh, dear innards. It's awful. I like when words are, are pretty, are dramatic, you know. Humble, awful. Anyway, eating humble pie means humiliation and subsequent apologizing for a serious mistake. You know, you, you did something wrong and terrible, and now you have to eat humble pie and, you know, grovel. Jesus wasn't baking humble pie to give to Judas. His humility was a powerful choice to lay down his life so that we all might live. I only bring this up. It's a little bit comical, but we get the wrong ideas about what humility is and what being humble is. It, it, a lot of people think they might not put it this way, but they'd say, well, it's, it's like being a doormat and everybody just wipes their feet on you. That, that's not humility at all. God became flesh so he could suffer and die for you. If he asks you to put off your flesh, put on humility, and offer yourself a living sacrifice... It's reasonable. If I then, verse 14, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you want to practice foot washing, you're free to do so. Do it. But uh, you uh, are off point in terms of what Jesus is talking about here. Put on humility. Walk humbled by what Jesus has done. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. The example Jesus was referring to was the foot washing. But we know that Jesus is our example in everything. In everything. Christian means what? Christ-like. Little Christian. Little Christ, rather, is what it means. And so we're, we're to follow his example. Paul the Apostle in one place says, uh, follow me the way I follow Jesus. And so that's, that's the idea. Jesus is our example in everything, not just humility. 
There are a lot of deep definitions for humble. Mere words, however, lack context. I suggest the following. Jesus always humbled himself. We ought to reflect upon everything we are told about Jesus and examine him for his humility. In other words, as adding to our study, uh, the way we study or the way we approach the word, we should start thinking about uh, asking the question, how does this show humility? How does, this, how does Peter or how does Jesus show humility in this situation or Paul or Peter? How did Jesus humble himself talking to the Samaritan woman by the well or the woman caught in adultery? What kind of humility overturns the tables of money changers in God's temple? Because that comes from humility as well. And so it behooves us to study these things and think, okay, Jesus in that moment was humbling himself to obey the Lord. How, what does that mean to me? Andrew Murray said, we had long known the Lord without realizing that humility should be the distinguishing feature of the disciple. That's pretty heavy. It's an honest to say, he says, I knew the Lord for a long time and never really considered how important humility was. Oh, we know that Jesus humbled himself and he's exalted and that we should humble ourselves and all of that. But the idea that I think we're getting across today that this is really bedrock for that night's victory and for the victory on the cross. Jesus says, I have humbled myself and I'm humbling myself still. And that humility is going to destroy the works of the devil because he can't figure it out. He, he, he has no knowledge of humbleness or humility. It's all pride. And this is what destroys pride. And, and, so, and, and I want you to be like me. And so I wash your feet, you wash one another's feet, not physically, spiritually. And it's not even in just serving others, it's in having the attitude of humbling ourselves. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You are probably in some trial or situation that cause for, uh, calls you to humble yourself right now. Maybe you're seeking counsel for a job situation or a relationship and things aren't going well. And, you know, it's, one of the answers is humble yourself. Have you humbled yourself in this situation? Well, I'm right. And I'm going to file a grievance and I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, okay. All right, but, so have you humbled yourself or not? Again, it doesn't mean you always lay down and let people tread on you. But what, what would humility look like in your situation right now? And then do it. Don't overthink it. One of the first songs I ever learned in Calvary Chapel, Humble Thyself in the Sight of the Lord. Remember? Who remembers that song? Great song. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up, up into heaven. He shall lift you up. Very simple. Not as easy to implement, but at least we're thinking about it now. And since it's a work of the Spirit in our hearts, yielding to him, I think, will produce a greater humility than we've ever had before.